And it's a fantastic portrayal of what Isaiah describes as the coming kingdom. The destiny of the world is locked, conjoined to the destiny of Israel. And all of the nations of the earth are going to stream to Israel to hear Yahweh teach them. That's what Isaiah chapter 2 says. God himself is going to provide by his Shekinah a covering for Israel in that coming future kingdom. It is the destiny of the capital nation for the one world government of the Lord Jesus. And there are some horrible things that have to take place according to the scriptures before that day. But it's marvelous to reflect on the peace and joy that will exist on planet earth in this coming kingdom of our Savior as reflected on poetically by John Newton. And I'm thankful for it. Another important poem we find in the Bible is Psalm 2, which describes our times perfectly. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and rulers, the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his Messiah, his anointed saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. See, the world doesn't want to submit to the creator and his son, the God, God, the father, son, and spirit, really. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. The master, the Adonai, scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them with his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And this is very Trinitarian, beloved, because the father has just spoken of his son, and now the son speaks. He says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession." You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Some will say this is hyperbole to describe the house of David and how God had favored Israel and given them their, uh, their kingdom. And so in David's house, there was a king. And so he would be established as the anointed of God. And that's true. But never was this fulfilled that the entire earth would be under the dominion of the house of David. But it's coming. It is the destiny of planet earth. The King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, the bright morning star, is the greater son of David, and he will rule as described. And what is our response here and now? Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship Yahweh with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. Yet how happy are all who take refuge in him. Father, as we open your word this morning to know you on your terms, we're mindful of the perilous times in which we live, of the thunderclouds on the horizon of this declining civilization. And Father, as we look at the bright lights of these children that you've given us and consider the decades that they're going to have to grow up through and live through, we continue to pray for their protection and their edification. Father, against the pressures of your enemy, against the the, the power and the, the, the glory of your church, the gates of hell, will have no sway. And Father, we are watching as believers in Jesus Christ are co-opted by the enticements of the world and the various ways that the snare of the devil pursues them. So we ask for protection for our children, and we know that this is not merely to remove the negative influences. It is to embrace the positive, the absolute goodness and righteousness of your person, our Father, of your Son, 
of the work of your spirit in us where we're walking in your righteousness. Father, we ask that instead of just rejecting the negatives, we would so be captivated, and our children so captivated by the goodness and glory and righteousness of your character that we would love and, as we heard first hour, desire the righteousness that is our, ours by our birthright. Help us live it this hour as we open your scriptures in Jesus' name. Amen. We have a church-age message to a church-age congregation in Second uh, Corinthians this morning. If you please turn to Second Corinthians. And all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. And how to live your life as a believer in Jesus Christ and dwelled by God the Holy Spirit and by God's design filled by the Spirit is in view today as we look at the so what of your salvation. We're studying the riches of divine grace topically and exegetically as we go through the passages that bear on this topic. We are, we're, we're mining the, the riches, the, the jewels and the gold of God's word regarding what you have because you're a believer in Christ. We're in the paragraph on this study of where the Bible describes you as new. What does it mean that you're born again, that you have the new birth, that you have eternal life, that God begot you as his child, all of these things. And we're discussing this today in 2 Corinthians 5. We've said by the new birth we're born again, sons of God, a new creation. And we're camping out on that idea that you are a new creation. If you feel like striving to become a new creation, you've missed the point of Ephesians 2, 8, 9. You can't strive for this because verse 10 says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. You get to be new in Christ only by trusting in Christ as your Savior. And that creation work is not a process. It's not something that I'm hoping to slowly attain toward as God builds me back or builds me up little by little, step by step. The little by little, step by step is what happens as a new creature in Christ. It is our growth to be mature in Christ for the purposes God has for us. But the new creation is an instantaneous, discrete event where before I was not alive in Christ, and after I am. It's called birth, the new birth, because there's a point before birth and a point after birth. And we know, those of you who have experienced this or had to stand by and encourage as your wife was experiencing this, you well know that birth takes a long time. But there's a point at which it takes place. And that emergence into this world is the beginning of something autonomous, experience for that human being outside of mother separated from the womb that moment is a discrete event and it's describing uh, the christian coming into life so the understand what i'm saying the systems of theology that say that i'm in a process of perhaps becoming saved are all to be wadded up and thrown away into the dustbin of unbiblical because it's not It's not what God's word says. It says you were created in Christ as an instantaneous event. How do I get that? It's the new birth. How do I get that? By believing in Christ as your savior. What do you mean he's my savior? I mean, you are a sinner in desperate need of life, separated from God, and as a consequence of Adam's fall and your own willful choices that come as a result of Adam's fall. And that's the the lot of every human being on planet Earth, even those that don't believe like you do. 
And what you need and what I need, what all human beings need is to be given God's life because we're born dead and separated from God in the sense of our spiritual life. We need the new birth. So what do I do to get it? If everybody is under this condemnation for all sin and fall short of the glory of God, if nobody attains to God's perfect, infinite righteousness, then what do I do? Well, God has done it for you. Because of God's infinite righteousness, dealing with sin at the cross of Jesus Christ, you and I bring our childlike faith and we receive the gift of life by believing in Christ as our Savior. He died for my sins. And after dying to satisfy the Father regarding my sins, his God's righteousness is satisfied by the work of Christ at the cross. This is the victory of the cross, is that God's wrath on sin is exhausted in Jesus at the cross. And what I do is trust in him as the one who is the only sufficient sacrifice for my sins. And having trusted in him, I recognize that I'm not talking about someone who just died on that Roman cross and suffered for my sins. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he screams out in darkness on the hill of the skull on Golgotha on Calvary. Not only has he died for my sins, but on the third day, God raised him from the dead. He is a risen savior whose work was satisfactory at the cross. That is the only thing you can do to receive eternal life is trust in Jesus Christ, the son of God who died for my sins and rose from the dead. And in that childlike opening of the hand to receive that gift of God's salvation work on the cross, you are receiving the eternal life that God alone can provide you. That's the gospel. Jesus died for my sins and rose from the dead, and I'm trusting in him. And the way you test it, if you really understand, is what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. What work can I do to enter the kingdom of God? Believe in him that the Father has sent. The name of Christ and the person of Christ and the work of Christ is the object of our faith. And I'm teaching Christian works today. But understand, it is the gospel of grace by faith in Christ that you receive this grace gift of eternal life that begins your new birth. And that trusting in Christ, that moment that you first believe is what we are calling the new birth. It is the new creation. It is what God does when we first trust in Christ. And here's my question for you who are believers. If you're not a believer, this question doesn't apply to you and feel free to think about what it must be like for them. I would rather though that you would actually consider Christ and trust in him. Put your faith in Jesus that he died for your sins. And I know you don't feel particularly sinful. I know that your sins don't bother you. That's the point. They bother God. So what do I do about my sin? Trust in Christ. He's the only salvation. So why did God create me new in Christ? I'm glad to uh, communicate to you this morning that I came to have this question to put in front of you by studying the passage that we're looking at. One of my favorite professors in seminary was famous for teaching everyone for 50 years how to study the Bible, how to read it inductively, how to let the Bible speak, and then we learn what it says, and then we conclude and build our theology from the, the Bible to the reasoning instead of trying to put our theology on top of the Bible. And, um, and this professor would say, 
you teach the reverse direction from the, 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 the method I'm teaching you. You study it this way, but you teach it the opposite direction. And I never understood that until uh, a few years ago, putting messages together, saying, after this entire process, you need to be able to answer this question. Why did God create me new in Christ? You heard it in Ephesians 2.10 already. Did you hear Ephesians 2.10? For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works that God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. You are not saved by works. Let's change the preposition. You're saved for works. You're not saved by works. The work of Christ is your salvation. But you're, sa- you're not saved by your works. You're saved for the works that God would do through you. And it's the Christian way of life. And it is works. And I've had someone once tell me, well, you preach works. I'm, I'm teaching the Bible. Well, if you're teaching works, then you can't teach grace. And by saying something like that, Understand, such a, such a reasoning would say my theology is more important than your Bible. That undoes the Reformation. And the only way, the only way you could end up rejecting faith alone in Christ as the solas of the Reformation presented would be to open Thomas Aquinas and your Latin Vulgate and put them on equal footing and say Thomas tells us how we must read the Bible, instead of letting the Bible speak. And that's what happened in the councils following the Reformation, the the, the Roman Catholic Church. The church did not reform. There was a split. The church did not reform because there was a failure to see the primacy of God speaking through his word. Human theology had been superimposed on the Bible. And any time you see this being done, any time I see this being done, we're recapitulating the reason for the Reformation. In other words, we're always... And always, and always, and always back to the Bible. Back to the Bible. Learn theology. Learn the summary. But it is subject to the Bible. It is the handmaiden of the scriptures. So let's go to 2 Corinthians. And by way of just really quick to read you into the context of the passage I'd like to study with you. I want to outline the entire epistle. In some ways, 2 Corinthians is my favorite book. Probably in the sense of reading through Paul's letters. It's the one that has so many little things that jump out at me when I just read through it. So many little doctrines in every paragraph. There's something that is an intricate idea that you go back and look and say, is he really talking about? Yes, he is. Second Corinthians is so exciting for so many reasons. It's also a punitive letter Paul wrote to a church that's out of whack. That's a technical theological term, out of whack. All right. And, and so Paul has to correct them. And the tone that comes through that I want to show you is, is that they don't listen to him and they don't respect him and they don't treat him like they should treat an apostle. And that's bad for his personal relationship with them, but much, much worse, that's bad for them because Paul is an apostle of Jesus sent by Jesus. He's the apostle of Jesus. Remember the Christian life of Paul. He was taught directly by Jesus. He was, and 2 Corinthians teaches us that, chapters 11 and 12. Paul is an apostle. He's not just some guy. And the Corinthians don't respect him because they aren't, uh, he doesn't feed them baby food coated with chocolate like they like from the rhetoricians. Paul's not a rhetorician. He's a Bible teacher. And some of the things that he writes are extremely beautiful and erudite. But that's not his purpose. His purpose isn't pretty. His purpose is practical. 
And I, I suspect he's right in line with the word of God since it's written in Koine Greek, street Greek. There was a flowery Greek language they could have used. Attic Greek would have been much more, more beautiful and ameliorated. But it wasn't what God used. God used the street Greek of the Roman Empire, GI language, if you will, to help them understand very clearly. So 2 Corinthians works this way, and this is Ryrie's outline. I don't mind sharing with you. If you've got a Ryrie study Bible, the best thing in that is the outlines of the books of the Bible. Not the theological summary at the end of the book of, of, of his Bible he put in there. Those are helpful some, but it's really the outlines of the books. You have the introduction, and then the apostle uh, tells them that there was this problem in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, and you want to restore that young man who's, who's repented in uh, in. 1 Corinthians. And then where we are today in chapter 5, in chapters 2 through 6, we're going to look at chapter 5, where he talks about the ministry of being an apostle. And the way Ryrie does it, it's alliterative, the confidence in chapter 2, the commendation of the ministry in chapter 3, you are letters, the covenant for the ministry, the doctrine of the new covenant in chapter 3, the character of the ministry is supernatural in chapter 4, 1 through 6, and then the circumstances that you'll find yourself in ministry in 4, 7 through 18. And then the compulsions. What we're looking at is the compulsions of apostolic ministry. Verse 9 says, we have it as our ambition, whether in the body or absent from the body, or whether absent from Christ and in the body, or absent from the body and present with the Lord. It is our ambition to be pleasing to him. 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ to re- receive recompense for the deeds done in the body, whether good or bad. He conducts the ministry in chapter 6, and then the way Ryrie breaks it, he says there are now exhortations to the Corinthians in chapter 6, 11 through 7, uh, 16. So uh, the reason I'm walking you through the outline is I wanted to showcase this. Be open toward me. He has to constantly appeal to these people to receive what he's offering. Be open. Be interpersonal. And it's not so much a functional thing. There are mechanics in relationships, but it's primarily relational that Paul is emphasizing. And the mechanics are open communications, and you receive what I offer you with the right attitude, is what he's saying. And um, we are very careful not to assume the prerogatives of an apostle, but Paul is speaking direct revelation that he received in training from Jesus Christ. Very often, especially in the Corinthian letters, he'll say, the Lord says, not I, or I don't have this from the Lord, but I say, because he was taught directly from the Lord Jesus Christ. He challenges them to be separated from evil in 6, 14 through 7, 1, and to be assured of his joy over their repentance in 7, 2 through 16. Think about this. Repentance means change of mind. Every time we grow in the word, we're repenting. We're changing our thinking. Every time we think of Christ instead of what I feel like, that's a repentance. That's a change of mind. He's, a, he's, he's rejoicing over this, and so he has to spend a paragraph, a lot of scripture, to, to reassure them of how he feels about them, of, of his attitude toward them, about their salvation. And then he's going to take up the collection in 8, 1 through 9, 15 for the saints in Judea, the people that have been ravaged by the, uh, the, the social outcome of the gospel and their rejection from the synagogue and other historical factors. And so they've got the poor saints in Judea, and he's always taking up a collection for them. And then chapter 10 through 12 Paul has to vindicate his apostleship. This tone keeps coming back in 2 Corinthians. And we learn so much about Paul and why we listen to him because of what he says in chapters 10 through 12. 
And then, of course, he concludes. So if you turn, please, in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I want to zoom in on that place where he's talking about the, the, the apostleship that he has, and it's a model for us as the apostles are models for us. And you have to be careful. Don't co-opt the rights of the apostle. Just because you say it doesn't mean I have to hear it. But if Paul says it, I do have to hear it. So we don't want to go there. But if Paul's doing it as imitating Christ, then we should do what we can to imitate Christ in the power of the Spirit that God has given us. And so in Ephesians 5.14 through 21, I'll just read it. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who might live so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we've known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Your King James says, behold, all things are new. Rep- representing a textual problem uh, from some, some scribe sh- chicanery, shenanigans by scribes, better translated, new things have come. The concept of the new creature in Christ is what we're focused on. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of God, be reconciled to God, of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. All right, let's dig a little bit. My personal challenge to everyone here is that you can grasp what we're about to do. You can understand it. You can receive it. You can benefit from it. You can take what we're going to read as we dig a little bit and apply it in your spiritual life. And you can do that because God, the Holy Spirit of Christ, lives in you. He's in you to abide forever, and he is our teacher. So when we zoom in a little bit on the text, beloved, you can get it. Now, if you understood what we just read in this paragraph, verses 14 through 21, good. But I want to zoom in a little bit and say what we can say with regard to the specifics of what he says and why he says it, because you are a new creature. You are a new creation in Christ. So let's think about it. Remember, answering the question, or God is answering the question, why did he save me? Why did he save me? Now, pay attention because the question will be very specifically answered in this passage. Why am I a new creature in Christ? For the love of Christ, soon echo, it, com- it compels us, constrains us, means to hold fast and hold close together. That's the, the etymology of the word, and it's a very flexible word in Greek. This word that he compels us or controls us or constrains us. It means, it can mean to hem you in and control, but it has an idiomatic sense, as I'm translating here, of forcing or driving you to a certain direction. It is like the opposite of what we talked about last hour with lust or, or strong desire, epithumia, being um, something that uh, is good or bad depending on what you're desiring. This is where you have the work of the Spirit 
through the Word of God, bringing about this conscious response, this conscience, sorry, response, and this compulsion. And be careful about compulsion because it doesn't mean apart from your will. It doesn't mean that God's going to force you to love God in response. And sometimes I think we wait for God to make me do the things inside that I'm supposed to choose already. But the love of Christ compels us because I've concluded this as my interpretation. Concluding this, because I have in the past, aorist participle concluded, creno, to judge or to conclude the matter. I've concluded this is the theology. That one, haste, one, on behalf of, in place of, as a substitute for all, died. One died for all. This is the substitutionary tone of Christ where he paid for the sins of the world. One died for all with the result that all died. In this case, the all he's referring to must be the believers who have actually trusted in Christ and so are in Christ. Now, the concept and the topic is the death that you die in position because of your faith in Christ, being united to Jesus Christ by the baptism of the Spirit. But this is the summary of the theology, and he's, he's applying this to the Corinthians. He's applying it to himself, and we must do the same. One died for all with the result that all died. When we ask the Apostle Paul, what drives you? What drives you? We can say, well, he clearly the love of Christ compels him. And that's what he means. This is a great moment to look in the mirror of God's word and say, is this true for you? Does the love of Christ constrain, compel, drive you along? How does it drive the Apostle Paul grammatically? How does it drive him? Well, he says, because I've concluded. This love of Christ's compulsion is a consequence. It's an effect from a prior cause. And I think that's what you have to do with the participle. It's a causal participle. Because I've concluded this, that one died for all. I don't think we're going beyond the text. Please don't. Okay, ask your question. The question is, is this the love of Christ for us or our love for Christ? The agape to, the, to Christu, this is the noun, agape, love, to, the, to Christu, of Christ. It's a genitive, and you have to ask the question, is it a subjective or objective genitive or possessive? Or is it the love of Christ owns, Christ's personal love, Christ, Christ's love? And I take it as possessive genitive, the love that Jesus has compels us. Why? Because in context, he says one died for all, with the result that all died. This is this, I'm answering your question as we go. The cause of the statement that Christ, the love of Christ compels us, the cause is that I've concluded that one died for all. So that love that sent the Son to die for us so that I am now in him because of his work on my behalf constrains me. That love that God had for us. This is he loved us. We love because he first loved us. So the answer, my answer is a subjective genitive or a possessive, the love Jesus personally expresses toward us and that he died for us. This is uh, um, Galatians 2.20. He loved me and gave himself for me. This is John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. This is Romans 5.8. Um, but God commendeth his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's God's love 
And it's known because he died for us. But what, how does Paul have this compulsion? How can you and I have the compulsion just by the grammar of verse 14? I contend that you'll think about it. You'll think about what God did for you. Go back to your so great salvation, the work of Christ for you, and you'll recognize that that's God's love toward you. That you have the life. And you died in Christ so that you have the life in Christ because of God's love. And that's how it constrains you. Oh, could I get back to when I was 14 years old. Learning about God's love, tape by tape, lesson by lesson, listen by listen. I wish I could get back there and say, this is how you do it. Because I'm sitting there waiting for this to happen to me. I'm waiting for it to occur to me. And pretty soon it occurs to me as I read the scriptures, wait a second. Loving God isn't, is not this optional thing that may or may not happen to me. It is a duty that God lays on Israel. And Jesus uses to summarize the law. And then Paul says that all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for righteousness, instruction in righteousness. If we don't love God, there's something horribly wrong. And compare that idea to Ephesians, to the church of Ephesus in Romans or Revelation 3 that they've left their first love. They're doctrinally sound, but they don't love God. So no, don't wait until this happens to you. How can I do this? God, how can I love you in response? I can conclude. I can think on the love of God for me and the work that he did for me. And since one died for all, all have died. That's the result. Now, in context, Paul is constrained or compelled for what? For the ministry that he has with the Corinthians. Corinthians are inconvenient Christians to serve. They're very inconvenient. They're emotionally a drag, and I think I'm just going to separate. You've become an emotional inconvenience to me. I just don't have enough emotional capital to deal with you. So I'm going to separate. I won't be going back to Corinth. Now, Paul writes, of we know, we know four letters to Corinth. The second one is what we call 1 Corinthians, and the fourth one is what we call 2 Corinthians. And you can check out our study on the Christian life of Paul to work that through. They're very inconvenient. So much of what he writes is to, to win them over. Why? Why does Paul bother with these people? Because the Lord Jesus Christ loved me, and he gave himself for me. Why do you do the things that you do? Not to merit the love of Christ, but to respond in kind, to love him back. And you can check out John chapter 14, verses 21 and 23 on a quick little bumper sticker on how do I love Jesus? How do I show my love for Jesus? By keeping his commandments. Furthermore, and Kai, and for all, on behalf and place of, as a substitute for all, he died. He didn't die in a long process of dying. It's a discrete description of the death. It's a summary way of describing that he died for us. He died in those three hours of the darkness covering the hill of the skull. For the six hours of the crucifixion, three of them were covered in darkness where he was screaming out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For all he died. And then you have this wonderful logical connector that makes all the difference because now we can think more than just that Jesus died. Everybody good on Jesus died for you? Right, right with me on the gospel? But now there's a henna, which means so that. So that. So that what? Why did he die? So that those who zao, who live, are living, 
no longer for themselves would live. Maybe just translating things through and walking through them this way helps me slow it down and think through the the beautiful things that are said. Married ladies whose husbands bought them a piece of carbon or engaged. If you have a crystalline piece of carbon on your, on your ring finger, of course, I mean a diamond, or if anybody ever bought you something pretty, did you just look at it and say, oh, yeah, a diamond? Yep. That's kind of how reading through the Bible goes. Oh, isn't that nice? Reading through it, do it. I mean, it is nice. But didn't you just take a minute to look at that and, and look at it in different light and see? Oh, it's burning my retinas. Uh, and, and, and really take a moment to, to think about what it means and how pretty it is and the thought that went into it. You don't, you don't take these things as just big chunks and just say, oh, it was nice. Look at the doctrine that is taught here. For all he died so that those who live no longer for themselves would live. Now, Paul is pretty poetic in the way he arranges this. But here's the challenge. What are you living for? I like to apply as we go. What are we living for? Well, generally, we live for ourselves. Man's got to eat. We'll include our families in that. You know, the, the selfless dad who's just trying to take care of his family. It's still you. Better be still you. You're worse than an unbeliever if it's not you, Paul says. And I know there's a selflessness of being moms and dads and all that, but I'm talking about the way we live. And Jesus cured us of this in Matthew 6. If you listen carefully to what Jesus says, you're seeking first the kingdom and his righteousness. You're not after serving yourself and making sure you got something to eat. You're after serving God because God will bring what you need. He knows the logistical needs. But Jesus died so that you and I would no longer live for ourselves. And then he does the great contrast of conjunction, Allah, but for the one who died for them and was raised. Why did Jesus save us? He died so that we would live no longer for ourselves, let me paraphrase, but for him who died for them and was raised. You're saved and given eternal life, not so you can kick your heels up and say, woohoo, eternal life. I mean, that's great. You have that. But what is it? It's lived in a direction. There's an orientation. I'm living for him. There's a theory out there of liberty that goes like this. The only verse that I read is Galatians 5.1. For freedom that you are set free, therefore, don't be ensnared in a yoke of bondage. Don't be, don't be bound again. What, what exactly are we free to and from and, and all that? What, what does freedom look like? Well, one thing it absolutely is not is autonomy. Autonomy is the idea that you're a law to yourself. I'm free. I don't have the law. You've got the law of Christ. The same writer in the same book in Galatians 5 says you're freed for freedom. Galatians 6 says you, you've got to keep the law of Christ. Check it out, Galatians 6 too. Bear one another's burdens. It's not a suggestion. It's not a request. It's not a, 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 a 
an, an encouragement. He says, do it. Bear one another's burdens. And so fulfill the law of Christ. So I thought I was free. You're, you're putting me back under law. There is no freedom from God. In fact, those that want that, Jesus has a little, little challenging statement. Is that if you want to keep your life, then you're going to lose it. If you lose your life for my sake, then you gain it. You gain eternal life. The desire for autonomy from God is the desire for the lake of fire. Don't want that. But that's what we do. We want to, I want to be on my own. I'll do my own thing. No, you are saved by the death of Jesus on the cross so that you can live for him who died for you and was raised. Beloved, this needs to become our ambition. He already said it in verse 9. This is it. There's no higher or greater thing I can offer you. There's no greater vision I can cast for you to adopt for your life. There's no greater motto that you could have that I am for Christ. Well, I wanted to be a, a successful person. You're going to be a failure in eternal currency if you're not living for Christ. You will be a failure. We're not talking about, well, this is what Christians generally do, and this is, seems to be okay, and it's good enough. We're not talking about what the world does or what Satan's world system does to influence the way that Christians live. We're talking about the radical nature of the actual Christian life described in the New Testament. If you can say, this is what I'm living for, and you open the curtain and, and reveal something besides the risen Christ, you found your idol. You found the reason for your failure. You found your kryptonite. You found the silver bullet that's going to kill the werewolf. You found the thing that is bringing you down. Pardon the silver bullet werewolf illustration. That's kind of backwards. Kryptonite, let's stick with kryptonite. If you find the thing that you're living for that is not Christ, in 2 Corinthians 5, you can say, no, no, pastor, this is the apostles. This is, this is remember, we had the paragraph outline. This is about the, the nature of apostleship. Uh-uh. What does it say? Look at the text. Put our finger back in the Bible. For all he died, he died for all, so that those who live, not those apostles who live, those believers in Christ with the new birth, with this new life in Christ, would live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised. Now, once you understand this, there's understanding. I, I, I cannot escape the conclusion that this is drawing, but I don't like it. Okay. Once you understand what's being said about your life, about the challenge of actual living out your faith, living as a Christian, that it's all about him. Once you let this go and, and actually think it through, there's a couple things that happen. It's a, it's a faith challenge. I trusted him for my salvation. And now I'm going to trust him to live my life. I'm going to take that step. And it's a daily step and it's a daily repentance. And those of you that are comfortable with this know what I'm talking about. Those of you that are a little farther along, you know, yeah, it's a daily, it's not about me. You know this. But those of you who haven't really understood this, that the Christian life isn't just I'm saved, but I'm walking by the Spirit. I'm living my life for him who died for me and, and was raised. It's going to be a challenge. So take it as a challenge. And take it as a challenge to your faith. You step out on faith, you trust him, say, okay, this is how it is. Okay. Some of you are, some of you are climbers. If I have my way and the little rock wall behind my house, well, I'll be climbers soon. Need you to heal up so you can help me set this up over there, Brendan. Anybody ever do any rappelling? 
It's repellent at first. Just like they say, you know, paratroopers jump out of perfectly good airplanes and dopes on a rope like me, aerosol guys uh, swing out of a perfectly good helicopter and rope down. I did go to aerosol school. That's the one little school I got to go to. Repelling is, um, is really counterintuitive. You, um, you have this harness, uh, historically called a Swiss seat. I'm assuming it's because of the Swiss and the Alps and such. But it's this, it's this harness that you, you tie around your um, pelvis, basically. And it's, uh, it's going to hold all your weight and all your gear. And, um, and you're, you're hooked up to this rope system. And the only way this thing works, let me p- pardon the, uh, the, the rough illustration, but th- this is like your body in an L shape where your leg is here and your head's here. I know it's backwards, but that's how my hand is made. Um, anyway, um, so your leg is here and your head is up here and you're sitting down in this Swiss seat. And the only way this system works by physics is if, without smashing your face into the wall, is that you have weight pulling you down this way and your legs are here, and you're leaning into it to keep yourself anchored into the wall. I hope you can see that. My weight pulling me this way anchors me into the wall if I've got a rope holding me up. See that? The, that the, the more I put my weight back, the more my feet are anchored into the wall, and I can actually rope down the wall. I can rappel down the wall. Those of you who have rappelled before, it maybe it's been a while, if you're like me, you're getting sweaty palms just thinking about the heights and, and all that. Boy Scout camp was so great for this. But it's very counterintuitive. They tell you, lean back. Lean back. No, no, sit back into it. Lean back, get your weight back. Because you'll never get your feet pressed into that wall until you put your weight down. And it's, it's so hard. What do you have to do to do that? You have to believe the system. You have to believe the person that's coaching you through it, that you lean back into it. And it seems so obvious that I would never, ever do that. But if you don't, you'll never go down the wall. You'll never repel. And it's so great to get it. The three or four times of doing this, like slowly kind of Batmaning, 1960s style, down the wall, pretty soon you're jumping. You're bounding down to get down the wall in a couple of steps. It's really great. It's a lot of fun. It's, it's, all, it's kind of like you feel like you're flying. But it's like everything you do, like riding a bike, you have to learn that there's a system and yet your body doesn't know how to work it. Eventually you learn. But the only way you learn is you do it. And then you've got to step out on faith and, and go on belay. Well, this is how this life works. You're trusting in him who died for you. You already gave him your faith for your eternal life. And now you're going to trust him with your life. I trust you. I'm walking with you. And you realize that your life has eternal significance. Your daily choices have eternal significance in as much as they're made. You're living, you're walking toward him because God alone can give it that significance. So then, let's draw a conclusion, Paul says, from now on, We know no one according to the flesh. The Corinthians see Paul in a fleshly sense, and that doesn't just mean sinfully. That means flesh and blood touch it, hear you. We've got this physical senses sense of the flesh. Again, it's the realm in which we live and experience except for the things of the Spirit. Paul's going to draw the distinction. We know no one according to the flesh. doesn't mean the sin nature here. It means talking to you face to face, 
that um, you know we get along personal in our personality, but this guy and I we don't really get along. And that kind of these kind of human concerns, like they're treating Paul like he's not a good orator, so they don't want to listen to the other guy that tickles their ears. We know no one according to the flesh, and though we have also known Christ according to the flesh, this is one of the plays where Paul says, I, "I've spoken face to face with Jesus." Check out chapter twelve. He was caught up to the third heaven to receive revelations from directly from Jesus Christ. I think it happened when he was stoned by rocks, not 60 style. Outside of uh, Pisidian Antioch, or, um, I think it's, Pis- it's Lystra Derby, Pisidian Antioch in, in southern Galatia when he was left for dead. Though we've also known Christ according to the flesh, but now no longer do we know him this way. So even Jesus, who I know personally, like Peter could say, I know exactly what his outline is. I know the timbre of his voice. I've been around him. I can, you know, John says in 1 John 1, we've handled with our hands the word of life. That's knowing someone after the flesh. I know you interpersonally in that sense, but I don't know him that way now. I'm like you having to wait for, the, for that part of things, the flesh and blood experiences, Now it's the spiritual things of God's revelation mediated by God's spirit. Most challenging verse in the passage, of course, is verse 16, and that's, I've given you my interpretation of it. But the challenge Paul offers here is how are you living? How are you living? By the spirit or by the flesh? Right? Flesh and blood. And within that is the problem of our sinful nature, which is thoroughly characterizing our flesh. So that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. He's a kine katissis. Kine, new, katissis, creation. The special technical word you'd use for God's work when he first made everything. God created you. And you know that you're a new creation if you are in Christ. It's, an, it's an, a very simple <clears throat> logical syllogism. It's inescapable. If you are in united to the Messiah by the baptism, by means of the Holy Spirit, then you are absolutely, without any equivocation or question, a new creation. This is the doctrine of the new creation. Now, Paul is appealing to them to walk, to live their lives for Christ, as we've said in the challenging verse 14 and 15, but the fact is you're a new creation. So walk worthy of your calling, Ephesians 4 says. This is our core verse of the riches of divine grace on the new creation, the new birth. Verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things, archaea, archaea, have passed on. They've passed away. You do. Behold, new things have come. How you apply this statement in your life will differ from person to person. Talking to one of you about uh, things that you've watched or seen or enjoyed or what kind of music you listen to, you come to Christ later in life, a lot of the stuff that you might have been involved in or interested in that were just the little decorations of the world, you might put those in a box and say, that's my old life. Um, and, And this is an interesting thing on doubtful things. The Christian life is not in the rejection of X, Y, and Z. The Christian life is in embracing the things of God. 
And it does mean that we don't love the world or the things that are in the world in 1 John chapter 2. But I would always emphasize we're adding positive much more than taking away negative. We're more defined by what we embrace than what we reject. And so what are these new things? I don't have to be angry. I'm commanded actually not to be sinfully angry in Ephesians chapter 4. I don't have to walk in anger. Someone might have hurt me, and I might be bitter about it, but as a new creature in Christ, I actually don't have the right to that bitterness. The old grudges that I hold, I don't have to hold those grudges. This is more about personal sin and the patterns of sin that develop and, and kind of characterize our, our personality. These are the things that we need to be putting away. As we saw last week um, when we talked about um, putting on the new and putting off the old, again in Ephesians 4. This is the new life. You can't walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, Galatians 5.16, Ephesians 5.18, Colossians 3.16. You can't do these things as an unbeliever. You can't do these things as, a, as an unregenerate person who doesn't have the new life in Christ. You can't put on the new if you don't have the new. So that we have the new life. So live it is the challenge, which means you've got to grow. Because, well, I'm a 40-year-old, but I just became a new creature in Christ. I just became a new believer. So I'm a baby in that sense, but I'm a, I'm a 40-year-old with 40-year-old experiences. Well, you got to get in the Word and grow. And what you find out, once you get an appetite for it, is uh, you need it all the time. You need it not just as a new baby, but Peter says we should long for the pure milk of the Word like newborn babies. It's our focus. It's our desire. It's our fuel. It's our spiritual fuel for the life that God has for us. Behold, new things have come. The difference between my translation here and the King James and New King James, again, is a textual critical issue of scribal uh, confusion. They added the word all that comes in the next verse. They they misread it. There's a good textual transmission across multiple um, traditions that, and, and truly this one makes more sense. All things aren't new. All things are not new. You do not have a a life free from your sinful nature, you still struggle with it. The old passions and desires are still waiting for you if you want to embrace them. In fact, Romans chapter 6 says, don't present yourself, your members, as instruments to sin. Because you can, but don't present yourselves to God as instruments of righteousness. So you have the new, and you need to embrace it. The old things have passed away. But all things are from God. Oh, and by the way, passed away. What does that mean? The old things have passed away. It's kind of vague in how he says it. Perhaps we should leave it vague. I told you I don't think it means that you don't have a sin nature. I don't think it means that, um, that you don't like country music or whatever. In fact, if you like country music, that's probably pretty sanctified. At least before 1988 or so. You're not going to laugh with me because it's almost time. I understand. The old things have passed away is a reference to your responsibility as a sinful person sold out to sin to obey your sinful nature. In, in comparison with other passages that are talking about the same ideas, at least it means that I don't have to obey my sinful nature. It doesn't mean that it's gone. It means that its authority is broken. And this is the death that I died to sin. Be very, under, very clear about this. The, the goal of having no sin 
that's a resurrection experience that you and I will enjoy. Be in our bodies made new with no sin. Until then, we'll be you know, absent from our body when we die and present with the Lord, and we'll be free from sin then too, but not in these physical bodies. And it's in the resurrection that you'll have the body together with your spirit, and you will be without sin uh, in your experience. But understand, sinful nature is, the, is uh, characterizing me as the old man, and I'm supposed to put that off. I'm supposed to put on the new man. And, and it's a daily decision. It's a moment-by-moment decision. But all things are from God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. Now, who is God in verse 18? Who is God? All things are from Theos. That's God the Father. Ectu Theo is from God the Father. And he, God the Father, has reconciled us we believers, to himself, that's God the Father still, through Jesus Christ. Dia Jesu Christu. Be very clear, Christians. We don't believe in one person with multiple representations or manifestations. That's not Christian Trinitarian monotheism. We don't believe in one person with multiple faces. And so God is the Father who is also in the same person, the Son, and so the Father is reconciled. No, there's three persons. But we're also not tritheists. We don't believe that there are three gods of equal power and majesty and attributes. We believe in one God who is eternally three persons, and it's a mystery, and I don't believe you'll ever resolve it, and there's no illustration that's ever adequately accounted for it. And the reason is because you and I have no experience or access to the nature of being one being who is eternally three persons. But the Father, Son, and Spirit, one way we understand it is that the Father does Father things and the Son does Son things. And the Father planned and sent the Son, and therefore the Father's plan of reconciliation is brought about through the Son's executive action when he went to the cross. So the Father didn't go to the cross for you. Patropassionism is an ancient heresy. We don't believe in it. The Father sent the Son, and the Son went to the cross for you. So Trinity comes up. See how we get to talk of theology here and there as we go through? But all things are from God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and given us the ministry of reconciliation. Why has God made us new? Well, we already heard so that we live for him. So we live for the one who died for us. You with me so far? In what sense will I live for him? Well, the apostle says he has given to us the diakonia, the ministry, the service of reconciliation, a word that he's used already. He reconciled us to himself. Reconcile means we were far apart and we've been brought near. We've been made near with God. This ministry of reconciliation is the reason that Paul is, is, uh, is in business. It's what he does. And it is what the love of Christ compels him to do, to be involved in. And my Bible helpfully says, namely, in verse 19, translating this little particle host, or you could say as in, and this is how God has commended to us the ministry of reconciliation. Let me take some pressure off of you. I'll stick with me here real quick. The pressure is that we have to reconcile people. I'm going to bring people that have no relationship with God. I'm going to reconcile them to God. That's the ministry of reconciliation. (gasps) I can't do that. I can't bring someone to have a relationship with God. They've got sin and God's got his righteousness judging sin and his justice you know, rejecting that association. They don't have God's righteousness imputed to them. I can't bring reconciliation, but Jesus went to, went to the cross to do it. 
So God has reconciled us to himself through Christ and given us the ministry of reconciliation, and that doesn't mean we go to the cross for people. As in, that God was in Christ reconciling the world, not just us, but the world to himself. He provided this salvation as an offer to the world, not reckoning to them their transgressions, not accounting to them their transgressions, and committing to us the word of reconciliation. Okay, the apostolic work of the body of Christ is a word of reconciliation, is the message of Christ and his work on the cross in pursuit of the Father's objective of reconciling us to himself. So let me, let me kind of summarize it this way. God loved you and he sent his son for you so that you could have a relationship with him because that's what God wanted of you. And he gave us, Paul says, this word, this logos, this message of reconciliation. So he doesn't count people's transgressions against them. He counted them at the cross. And you can say, well, doesn't everyone get saved? They don't because they haven't believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God in John 3.18. The basis for judgment is that rejection of Christ. He doesn't reckon to them their transgressions, and he's committed to us a word of reconciliation. So I'm going to, in verse 14-15, live my life for him who died for me and was raised. What does that look like? The ministry of reconciliation where God has this project of saving people. And he's committed, Paul says, to us this ministry of reconciliation, which is that we have a message that we're sharing of God reconciling the world to himself so that you can tell people, listen to it, you can tell people Jesus died for your sins on the cross and rose from the dead. It's a very strong thing to say. It's an absolutely true statement. Well, they don't think like we think. It doesn't matter. They're not from a Western country. It doesn't matter. Jesus died for their sins and rose from the dead. Well, they don't. It doesn't matter. It's the truth. And I'm not saying that you're just going to say that and move to the next person. I'm saying you need to have this ready in your heart. Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead to give us eternal life because God wants a relationship with you. And this ministry has been committed to us. Therefore, on behalf of Christ, we're ambassadors. We're living our lives for the one who, was, who died for us and rose from the dead. We are commended to this ministry of reconciliation. And therefore, on behalf of Christ, we're ambassadors. Now, again, the interpretation that says this is only for the apostles, the only the apostles are ambassadors, misrepresents the case because Matthew 28, 19, and 20 tells those disciples who will be the apostles to go make more disciples. And so we're in a project under the apostles of carrying forth this ministry of reconciliation by proclaiming their word. I'm not giving you new information. It's the old things the apostles gave us. This is how it is. Like God is making an appeal through us. See, we're, we're the representative of the king. As though God is making an appeal through us and we beg on behalf of Christ that you be reconciled to God. And I, th I, I take it that when he says this, he means this is the general approach that I have to you. It's how we got started, Corinthians. And, and those of you, and I don't think he thinks there's a mixed multitude necessarily, but this is our appeal. Be reconciled to God. In other words, you don't have to have a really close personal relationship with me. That's not the appeal. Get, in, get on board with my ministry. Fill out the card. Commit yourself stamp it with the blood, blood oath, and you and I are tight. It's not that. It's not that. That's what, uh, um, that's what the world would do with this. They'd make it about the, someone besides Jesus, make it about the, the person. That's what the worldly church does. It's about my ministry. It's about my kingdom that I'm building. 
No, the king is the king, and the ambassador is one proxy representing the king, and that's the value we carry. We're proxies. God's making his appeal through us. I know of a cult in our environs. Became aware of this a few, few months ago. A cult that happened and has damaged the lives, as they report, of, of dozens of people, if not hundreds of people, a very popular thing that was supposedly Christian, and it was involving a local church and a ministry that inevitably, as it'll always be, had a prophetess. It had a prophet. That the prophetess ministry got involved with this church, and the way they could say, send us all your money, is the prophetess had special communion with God. She had special congress with God, and that was the reason that she could make these decretals. When you challenge them and say, you're calling her a prophet. She's, oh, no, no, I'm not. But they would always then say she had special communion with God. She has a special inside track with God. No, the apostles have died. They've left their word because the Spirit of God has inspired what they wrote, and we are under the apostles in that sense. That's what the New Testament is. And if Paul, the apostle, is simply a proxy ambassador representing God, then that's what we all are. Beware of the supposed inside track. And let's do the good work. Let's do the actual work of learning the grammar and studying the text as it is. I'm proposing you the alternative to that mystical nonsense that's really satanic. How many Christians are confused about their faith now because of this idiotic prophetess? If you talk to people in town... In Norwich, talk to Christians around, you'll find them. Oh, yeah, yeah, I used to go to church. That's what happens when you start talking to the community. So what is our role in the world, beloved? If we're going to live our lives for Jesus, it's going to be to be ambassadors on behalf of Jesus, begging on behalf of him that the world, that the people we encounter be reconciled to God. Beg isn't too strong a term, a word for this word for making the request. Please one more verse to summarize who Jesus is and what he did. For he who did not know sin, that's Jesus, for us he made to be sin. That's the Father made him to be sin. This is a challenging <coughs> with the pronouns, but this is what it means. He made him to be sin. That's, he judged our sins in him on the cross. So that we would become the righteousness of God in him. Do you believe in the substitutionary atonement of Christ that he paid for your sins on the cross and satisfied God's wrath regarding sin? That's the core of the gospel. He, God the Father, made him the Son who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we, broken, nasty sinners, selfish people, we would become the righteousness of God in him. Why did he become sin? So that we would become righteousness. So that we would be made righteous in God's eyes. So, beloved, does the love of Christ compel you? Only if you think about it. Only if you conclude with Paul that since one died, all died with him who trust in him. Does your salvation matter to you such that you can say, I am born again to live for the one who died for me. Father in heaven, we praise you for the clear word of God and the challenge that it presents to us. 
Father, we've, uh, we've worked through some of Paul's most exciting material, showcasing what the Christian life is and isn't, what it looks like based on what Jesus did for us. The so what of our so great salvation, that we who are alive in Christ would live for him. What a privilege and blessing it is to make this appeal, Father. What a challenge it is, what training we need, what time we need in your word to be equipped to do so. Father, I pray for undaunted believers at Preston City Bible Church to take hold of this high calling. Not to slough it off on the apostles or the pastor or the super Christians, but this is how we're supposed to all live as those who are alive in Christ. Let us embrace it, raise us to it. Keep us humble. We pray it in Jesus' name. We all said, amen.